have a preconceived view about diet and health, right? If you already have come to a conclusion about what you think the best diet is, whether that's vegan or whether that's low carb, you can build a case in favor of that. It doesn't mean it's a very good case or a very strong case, but you can build, and that's that's why there's so conf- so much confusion, certainly in the public with nutrition, because honestly, you could you can argue nearly any position. Um, it's just a question of whether that position actually has any evidential weight and, and integrity to it. That's, but that involves then knowing enough about the research to be able to pick apart why it, it might or might not uh, hold for what the, the claim actually is. And then I think even though it's often adjusted for, I think that there's still the contribution of of high animal fat generally and saturated fat in particular to cardiovascular disease, which which is something we do know. Um, So I don't think it's TMAO, but I do think there are other mechanisms by which high, you know, unprocessed meat consumption could still contribute to to increased risk. And it relates to, you know, heme, nitrates, nitrites, uh, saturated fat, animal fat generally, um, you know, and, and potentially, and, and again, exacerbated by the absence or, or low intakes of vegetables and fruit and fiber right. and all that good stuff. Kia ora, friends. Welcome back. I know it's been a bit of time. We've had a little bit of a hiatus on the Vegan Body Coach podcast. We'll just call this season two part two okay we're back into it we've got a whole bunch of great episodes coming up and today is gonna be an absolute banger for you for anyone hanging out here for the first time my name is jackson burden i'm the host i am a personal trainer nutrition coach and gym owner here in auckland new zealand and this podcast is all about bringing together like-minded people interviewing experts athletes researchers in their respective fields and putting out some really good quality information for you to take away and implement in your own lifestyle Today I've got none other than Alan Flanagan and if you don't know who Alan is, Alan is a PhD candidate in nutrition at University of Surrey and he's also got a master's in nutritional medicine. He's the founder of Alinea Nutrition where he delivers evidence-based analysis of key issues in nutrition science and also he's the research communication officer over at Sigma Nutrition uh, which is run by Danny Lennon host of Sigma Nutrition Radio, who we've had on the podcast previously. Now, Alan is one of the smartest guys I've had the pleasure of talking to, a very rational guy, and has an incredible grip on the research, specifically on nutritional science. And I wanted to get him on today to discuss what the data actually says on meat and human health and any animal product in human health. I think as the general population, we have a hard time separating the moral and ethical implications of consumption of uh, animal products from the objective assessment of the evidence from a human health perspective. The health effects should be considered independently of the moral and ethical and environmental Uh, implications and then we can discuss the considerations for the dosage or the potential exclusion of those animal products but I think when we get into trouble is where we start to regurgitate information from the latest New York Times bestseller or you know the 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 big empty plant-based hotshot that you're getting your information from 
uh, without looking at it probably from a more nuanced perspective um, and realizing that there's very, very few black and whites in nutritional science. And as you'll listen to in this in this discussion, um, just as a disclaimer, this is going to be quite an in-depth look at the various animal products. For example, we cover red meat, processed meat, unprocessed meat. We cover some chicken. We cover dairy and the nuances of you know different types of dairy, cheese, butter, yogurt. We also touch on fish and omega-3s. Um, and a little bit of insight into leucine, protein, and the effects on IGF-1. And it is a pretty deep dive. There's some pretty sciencey bits, so just hang in there with me until the end, and I'll, you know, I'll come back around and we'll do a bit of a uh, a recap for you, and hopefully try and summarize some of the main points. So don't fret if you feel it again lost throughout this episode. But all that to say, this is not an episode that is trying to discount your reasons for excluding animal products. And I'm completely aware of the huge benefits to uh, animal welfare, the ethical and moral components of that, and of course the huge benefits to reductions in global greenhouse emissions from our reduction in animal products. More so this episode is just trying to encourage all of us to think a little bit more critically about these topics, especially when it comes to the access of nutritional adequacy around the world and blanket statements of saying that the world needs to be plant-based or the world needs to be vegan. Because in reality, there are many populations around the world, populations that won't be listening to this podcast right now, that are reliant on certain animal products to achieve nutritional adequacy for their communities and we can't rule that out so when we look at nutritional science i think it's important to have a lot more of a nuanced view and to have someone like alan come in and paint the picture that yeah there are some animal products that may increase risks of different types of cancers or cardiovascular disease but there are other animal products that are potentially beneficial for human health as well So like I said, guys, it's a pretty in-depth one. Take your time, get through it, and I'll meet you on the other side for a recap, and we'll see if we can summarize this thing. This is episode 31 with Alan Flanagan. You are listening to the Vegan Body Coach Podcast, all about optimizing your strength, fitness, and physique through a plant-focused diet. My name is Jackson Burton, and I'm a nutrition and training coach for vegans, the plant-centric, and plant curious. I'm sitting down with athletes, experts, and influencers around the world to inspire you to create your best vegan body yet. Alrighty, so Alan, thank you so much for jumping on the Vegan Body Coach podcast. It has uh, been a long time coming, but we're here now, and it's a real honor to have you on. Um, for the listeners, really quick, did you want to give a little background as to who you are, what you do, how do you spend your days at the moment, um, and I guess where you're at in the world and you know how, how COVID's been affecting how you sort of do life? Yeah. So, yeah, I've um, been in London, basically, England, the UK, for uh, pretty much the entire time. Um, but as people may tell from the accent, I'm not from the UK originally. Um, Irish originally, and I, I, I have come to nutrition and research in a fairly roundabout way. So I'm one of those people who didn't think that 
science was something I was into. I was a kind of humanities student, like history, English, languages. Um, I did that in college and then went into law, uh, did a law degree after my undergrad was history and English. And then I, I spent 10 years practicing as a barrister in Dublin. Wow. But in that time frame and in this background, I was always really interested in nutrition, largely for my own reasons, like playing rugby in school and all this kind of stuff, looking for the extra edge to make like an average player better. And it didn't, but yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, didn't so right. You kind of realize like that's where nutrition's really limited. You're either good at a sport or you're, you're not, or you're okay agree. at it. So, uh, but yeah. yeah, I was really fascinated by the, by the kind of, by the, I think that maybe the, the benefit of being um, in law is you're constantly trained and honed to think about evidence. Where does your evidence come from? So I kind of found myself becoming a bit of a PubMed warrior in my mid-teens and, or in my mid-twenties, sorry, and reading papers and very quickly realized like I didn't have a clue what I was, what I was doing and reading. So I started looking for some kind of formal education. And uh, ultimately, through through some kind of serendipitous, um, you know, interactions, I had a, f- a friend who had got on ahead of me to a master's in the UK at the University of Surrey. Um, so I, I kind of applied, um, and they they unofficially were happy to kind of let in a couple of people every year that don't uh, aren't from like a biosciences background. So I was fortunate yeah. enough. They were kind of like, oh, this is strange. You're a lawyer, but this is interesting. And I, I kind <laughs> of at the time, <laughs> was, we'll, we'll let you in. We've no expectations. And um, yes, and the rest really is kind of history. I, I, I really took to the science of, of nutrition. I'm, I'm not really that interested in the food side, the, the arguments we have about food. The reason I fell in love with nutrition as a science is because of like the methodology, the complexities and the nuance within, within the evidence. So, you know, whether we're talking about eggs, tofu, chickpeas or chicken, like I don't really, I'm not really, I don't really care about that stuff as much. You know, yeah. I don't have a vested interest in the food part. I'm obsessed with method and methodology mm. and I fell in love with nutrition for all of the complexity and nuance of that. And then, yeah, I got to the end of my MSc and an opportunity for a full-time PhD came up in a project that was really cool. We were doing a controlled like laboratory experiment in humans and I was like, I can't pass this up. So I made the switch full-time and that was three years ago. And then in the meantime, I've set up my own website and I've started working with Sigma Nutrition and things are good. So lockdown was productive. Yeah. Uh, but also I'm kind of happy for pubs to reopen and the sun's coming out here. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think you guys are in a good space right now with, uh, with everything reopening over there. So, um, I'm sure you'll be enjoying a few pints. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's um, it. it's, yeah, it's it's um yeah, I mean listeners will know um Danny who I've had on the podcast and and sort of his take on how he you know looks at the evidence and a very rational mindset which I love and I really appreciate and it's the same with you and listening to the sigma statements or reading the sigma statements and listening to discussions within the the sigma nutrition radio podcast um it's this level of nuance that's often missed in a short Instagram post, you know, where mm-hmm. you, um, like you're saying, there's so many intricacies to science and specifically nutrition science. And I think for the average person, reading a paper is 
an absolute nightmare. It's just gibberish. And even for me, you know, I can get through a paper and, and, and read it to some level of understanding. But even for myself, I much prefer to read a, um, a research review, for example, so I can mm. see someone else's take on it, have them kind of break it down a little bit easier for me to understand and then kind of be able to implement that and, and dissect that and then distribute it out to whoever um, I'm posting to. So I guess with yourself and, and how we look at the topic of uh, nutrition, especially around plant-based nutrition, where do you see you know, how we are looking at data currently and how potentially we're going wrong and how we're looking at, at data. Cause I think, you know, with a lot of the, you know, the plant-based community, we have a lot mm. of, um, I, I guess what I would say is there's, there's big shot MDs out there that'll put out a specific, um, opinion on, on some data. And then that will get regurgitated over and over again until it just becomes common speak within the plant-based community. Right. Um, yeah. and then everyone's just agreeing on the same thing, but then, there are rebuttals to that that are kind of getting pushed aside and then it just becomes this like all-knowing um <laughs> all-knowing idea about nutrition so yeah where do you think we're going wrong in that sense yes um so it's it's something that um and we can see uh i think what i'm about to describe what i think is going on play out with with other areas of nutrition uh, as an example, the kind of health at every size movement. And, and, and what it is, in my opinion, is that evidence and activism don't particularly mix very well together. Mm. And it's very, as, as an activist, it's all about the outcome and wanting other people to, to join you in, in adopting this particular position. Um, and as a result, kind of there, we get into various kind of motivated reasoning and, and and approaches that are less based on kind of intellectual rigor and and integrity and in, in 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 analyzing and investigating a position, and more about this is what I believe, and I will work backwards to uphold this belief with scaffolding. And that scaffolding tends to be, oh, here's a study that shows X and here's a study that shows Y. Uh, and that's really not how we make decisions in science. We make decisions from a total body of evidence. And within that, we look for different converging lines of evidence from different types of study, you know, because uh, no one study is going to answer every question. And so what what I think kind of happened, and, and really, if you look at particularly those MDs in the in the plant-based vegan community, they seem largely to be in the US. Mm. Um, in the UK, there's there's been kind of on the flip side, most of the kind of quack doctors here are all low carb keto <laughs> yes. crazies. And yeah. you know, and, and so so it's been I, I've wondered like why why is there this kind of transatlantic divide in terms yeah. of where the MDs, what camp they pitted themselves into? <laughs> um but I think what it is, is, you know, the first is the incredible authority bias that comes with being um, a, a healthcare professional, but specifically medical professionals carry a huge amount of weight in, in, in terms of authority and uh, perceived authority. The second is that nutrition is, has, has historically been kind of treated as this you know, inferior science that's, you know, very inaccurate and we can't know anything. And, and it was largely dismissed within conventional medicine. 
and as a result, they don't really get much training in nutrition. And as a result, their actual under they come. A lot of medical doctors approach looking at nutrition as if they're interpreting, you know, biomedical research, a biomedical standard of RCTs, blah blah blah. And their their lack of subject specific knowledge actually plays out when you're thinking about how they interpret, you know, what an exposure of interest is or what they consider a good or bad study and and this kind of thing. And and I think that kind of overconfidence combined with undercompetence can be dangerous in any context, but particularly where someone then carries that combination forward with the authority bias of being a doctor mm. and then saying, well, obviously, I'm a medical doctor, I grasp this. And it's like, yeah, but you know really nothing about nutrition as a, as a subject of inquiry. Um, and that lack of subject-specific knowledge shows in a lot of the part, p- positions that are articulated. And then I think that what happens is over time, once someone becomes famous and their, their, their speaking fees and their books and all of their, you know, public persona is wrapped up in this identity of being a kind of vegan doctor or plant-based doctor, there's no going back from that. Mm. There's no putting your hands up and saying I was wrong because when people do that, the vegan community seems to eviscerate anybody. Who, who dares actually say I've changed my mind on something. So, so I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a community that is particularly encouraging of, of, mm. of kind of openness and, and inquisitiveness. And I think that in, in many issues, it's been led down a garden path in terms of evidence by some of these kind of very populist us based plant-based doctors and, um, mm. And I, I, I'm quite ruthless with this. I, I follow a simple heuristic that if a medical professional or any healthcare professional really inserts their dietary allegiance before their title as a healthcare professional, whatever that diet is, vegan or low carb, keto, then I simply can't, I, I just don't deem them as credible. I'm just mm-hmm. like, it, it's, it's a ludicrous proposition, you know, mm-hmm. like I, I don't see, I don't see credible cardiologists going around calling themselves the atorvastatin doctor. You know, it's just <laughs> yeah. like yeah. It's, it's nonsense. You know, yeah. so yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So there's like a, there's I guess some thoughts. there's a there's a vested interest there because they've already got a likely some kind of moral grounding for choosing this way sure. of of living or this this way of eating. So that is that in by itself is kind of skewing the the inter- interpretation of the research to some degree when we when we look at different studies um and this will be interesting for the listeners because they might not have heard this before would you be able to quickly run through the hierarchy of evidence when you're looking at these studies and then maybe that would be of listeners a better idea of you know, when someone is um, referencing something in, in regards to this, how they can mm. interpret that? Yeah, so so broadly in, in biomedical sciences, there's this hierarchy of evidence that's shaped like a pyramid. And on the top of it, you have meta-analysis and systematic reviews. And then the next underneath is randomized controlled trials, preferably double-blind. And the ideal is that the meta-analyses include randomized controlled trials. And then underneath that, you have prospective cohort studies, which are observational studies of large populations over time. And within the biomedical tradition, observational evidence is 
considered worthless, basically. And it's very easy to do really gold standard, so to speak, randomized control trials. You can recruit huge patient populations. You can give them a very clearly defined intervention, which is often a drug. And then you can compare that drug to nothing, to a placebo. And you can have all of the people in the in the study not know whether they're getting the drug or the placebo. So they're blind mm. to what they're getting. And then all the researchers can be blind too. So it's double blinded. And this is con- whereas nutrition starts to run into some difficulties, right? I mean, if I'm telling you to eat olive oil, I can't have you being blindfolded to, for the whole study, right? It's, it's, it's people have to eat. So for nutrition interventions that don't involve supplements, that, that was really difficult to, to actually satisfy a criteria for. Um, and often if you're the investigator, you need to tell people to do something or you certainly want them to do something. So, and, and because most studies for nutrition in the short term, we look at intermediate risk factors. So if we want to understand in a short term randomized control trial, the relationship with a certain diet and diabetes, we're not actually looking at diabetes as an outcome. We're looking at the effect of that diet on blood glucose or insulin levels. Same with cardiovascular disease. We're not actually waiting for people to die of cardiovascular disease, getting them to eat diet A versus diet B. We're looking at the effects of those diets on LDL cholesterol. And that's because we can't do those trials over 40 years. Um, So that's where observational research in nutrition is actually the cornerstone of the field. Um, and the field draws a lot of criticism for that. But, you know, that's mm-hmm. where we're looking at people over 10, 20, 30 years, and we're seeing what their diet was like, you know, earlier in life before they had diseases, and then we're, we're trying to follow that up. And so they're really the kind of the corner uh, stone uh, styles of trial. But for nutrition, it becomes complicated because a lot of meta-analyses are of prospective cohort studies, but that's like comparing apples and oranges. You're taking a, a population eating a diet in Japan and throwing that that population study in with a diet in America and another study from a, 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 a population in Finland. Like they're not comparable. Nothing about them beyond diet is comparable. You know, so so nutrition research. There's a lot of nuance and technicalities, and it can be easy if you have a preconceived view about diet and health right if you already have come to a conclusion about what you think the best diet is whether that's vegan or whether that's low carb you can build a case in favor of that it doesn't mean it's a very good case or a very strong case but you can build and that's that's why there's so conf- so much confusion certainly in the public with nutrition because honestly you could pr- you can argue nearly any position um, it's just a question of whether that position actually has any evidential weight and, and integrity to it. That's, but that involves then knowing enough about the research to be able to pick apart why it, it might or might not uh, hold for what the, the claim actually is. So I think it's, I think, you know, in a complicated field, Though that nuance gets swept under the rug for here's my conclusion, this is what I believe about diet and health, and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to I'm going to find studies that can that can bolster that belief. 
Mm, yeah, like you mentioned, I think it's it's very, I guess, especially with like observational studies, it's very contextual, isn't it? So based mm-hmm. on, like you're saying, the maybe the ethnicity group is is completely different, and so there's a confounding variable there within within that and how you, I guess, um, apply that to your own life or to the people you're you're speaking to with observational research itself. I guess this is one of the things that is is often um, people either will just blanketly throw out the research because they're like, oh, it's only observational study. It's not right, an yeah. RCT, so we're not going to take that into account. And then you've got the other end of the spectrum where there is no RCTs on a particular topic or it's too hard to do. Um, like I was reading the article yesterday and, and they quoted some guy who was saying, look, if I wanted to do like the the, the be-all study on on diet, I would need to take, you know, a thousand kids born today and put them on one specific diet for the rest of their life for the rest and of they, their life yeah. yeah and they can only only yeah. eat that thing <laughs> yeah. i'd probably have to put them in prison to do it because they, they you know yeah. they're not going to want to go and eat some mcdonald's or whatever the case may be um mm-hmm. it's just not going to happen so i guess it might happen we- in china but <laughs> yeah well it might do yeah there's <laughs> a there's a oh, this this the, the frontier <laughs> yeah if you want to abandon research ethics just yeah <laughs> Oh my goodness. Okay. Um, A whole other topic. So, um, so yeah. So I guess when we come to observational research, um, how do we know whether we should take it or leave it? Uh, well, there's, there's two ways of thinking about that. The first is we've no choice, but to take it Mm. right. We're never going to have 40 year RCTs. In nutrition and even in any sub like and even if we did it would become an observational study after about five of those years most likely that's right yeah um and so you know because people aren't going to if you're telling people to eat an ounce of nuts a day and that's the intervention i mean uh, and you're going to expect them to do that religiously every day for for 40 years like it's just it would become an observational study so so there and and that's the reality that I come at this issue from. I'm like look observational research is is going to be prospective cohort studies are going to be the cornerstone of nutrition science for the foreseeable future. So rather than engage in the kind of the dismissal and the the hand waving of it off, let's improve methodology, which which is all happening like people talk about the the limitations of of nutrition uh, observational research as if people in the field like don't know <laughs> that these limitations <laughs> exist yeah. rather than the fact that for 30 years people have been working to improve methodology improve how we assess diet and the accuracy of that assessment you know now i have a study running currently for example where i've got people taking photographs of their meals on a cell phone and it it's sta- it time stamps so every time they take a photograph the time that it was taken at is captured so i know exactly what time they ate at which is which is what we're looking at so you know that these these methodologies are 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 only going to improve with technological advances, and it's not as in and and here's the real thing: like it's just not as inaccurate as people think it is. It, it the inaccuracy or accuracy of it just depends on what we're talking about. If you're talking about a niche vitamin or mineral, you know, if we're saying, well, how accurate can uh, an observational study look at people's B two intake? vitamin b2 intake not 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 really reliable at all because water soluble vitamins we pee them out and you know you do one assessment it's it's not really but if we're talking about the major macronutrients carbohydrate fat in particular and then the fat subtype saturated fat poly monounsaturated fat and we're talking about say fiber or complex versus refined carbohydrate dietary protein 
and even then other like omega-3 fatty acids for example because we don't produce them in the body you know you easier to kind of measure in some ways on observational research so mm. it the the question of is it accurate the answer to that is it depends on what your exposure is it depends on what you're talking about and for the major macronutrients and those kind of and certain other nutrients there's sufficient accuracy in nutritional epidemiology to give us to give us information in the results that we can use to inf- to influence public health policy for sure yeah that's a great answer so i guess what the 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 crux of this conversation where is leading is is kind of on to the, the question of is if we look at a lot of the, the data that's out currently, is there actually sufficient evidence to say that red meat, dairy, eggs, fish is actually harmful to human health? And this is, this is, you know, I'm, I'm kind of on the mindset through um, the, you know, the, um, the studies I've done with like MNU, for example, and, you know, just since then and the different people have been around of the, of the view that, yeah, you can have, a sufficiently healthy dietary pattern that includes animal products if you want it to be that way. Mm-hmm. And the same goes for a, a um, plant exclusive diet. I'm of the opinion mm-hmm. that you can do both um, very well if you have, you know, the, the access to foods and the knowledge base yeah. and, and all these things in place. Um, but then we have the blanket statements of like, no, meat will cause cancer. Oh, no, dairy will, you know, um, it's full of hormones and it's going to give you breast yeah. cancer or whatever the case may be. So these these blanket statements that are thrown out. And so if we kind of maybe jump onto red meat to start with and, and kind of sure. dive into some of the claims around red meat, um, you know, a lot of it is related to um you know, cancer and cardiovascular disease. Yeah. Um, what would you say are the, the biggest claims there? And then potentially what is actually the science saying on um, is is red meat itself and, you know, and we can include or exclude processed meat in this if you like. Mm. Um, uh, what does the data say on that in terms of human health? Yeah, I, th- I definitely think um, cancer is probably the, the, the biggest claim, the most consistent claim about red meat. Um. Cardiovascular disease, yes, you 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 see it claimed as, but but not with the kind of like, not with the level of fervor that you see the the claims about cancer yes, made. I, I think with red meat, it's important to be granular. Um, so as between processed meat and unprocessed meat, there is a clear distinction in the literature, and I think that we can say with a, a reasonable degree of certainty that high consistent intakes of processed meat consumption, i.e. meat that is salted, cured, um, and otherwise, um, is is carcinogenic, particularly for colon cancer, colorectal cancer. Um, And I think that we could probably also say that although uh, yeah, that 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 with regard to processed meat and cardiovascular disease, that that there is a likely causal relationship between them there, and that may be mediated by processed meat nitrates and, and nitrites, and an interaction potentially with heme iron, certainly for carcinogenesis in the colon, but for cardiovascular disease, it seems like that might be kind of nitrates nitrites that re- mediates the relationship with processed meat. So even within the kind of shall I say, omnivorous community. I I think within the evidence-based, science-based side, I don't see many people argue against that point. 
Uh, and so I think we could kind of park processed meat. And, that, mm. and that's not to say that someone can't have it again, if they so choose, you know, like some chorizo in an omelet every now and then. But but we're talking about intakes at a dose threshold of about 50 grams a day and over. So that would be that would be kind of relatively, you know, high daily intake. Uh, and so that would be something that we would not recommend. And, and we could say that, yes, that kind of threshold and consistency of intake is, you know, is, is, is it causally increases risk for cancer um, and appears to causally increase risk for cardiovascular disease. Unprocessed meats, a little more complicated. Mm. The IARC, where they designated processed meat carcinogenic to humans, designated unprocessed meat as probably carcinogenic. And there's there was an argument back after that 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 was probably an unwarranted conclusion because they filled in the gaps on a lot of evidence, you, and primarily with mechanistic evidence. And mechanistic evidence is really important. This is where you kind of maybe feed you know rats a certain diet or something, and you're trying to understand what mechanisms might actually be, be increasing the risk for whatever the disease is. But the reason was because the cohort studies, the observational studies were quite inconsistent. And the reason that they may be inconsistent might relate to the actual levels of red meat intake that you see consumed in the populations. So if we look at the US cohorts, where red meat intake daily tends to be higher, I'm talking about unprocessed red meat now, so park processed meat. So Unprocessed red meat in some of the US cohorts you see at 170, 180 grams a day. And in the cohorts that have been conducted very well in terms of their dietary assessment and have ha- have been able to compare these high levels of intake to kind of much lower levels of say like 20 to 50 grams a day, then we see a consistent increase in risk. That's even after accounting for say vegetable and fruit intake. But if you come over to Europe, you don't tend to see those effects. And that's because average daily unprocessed red meat consumption in a lot of populations in Europe is not particularly high. It's not over 100 grams a day. And if you go over to some of the Japanese cohorts, then you also see no real association. In fact, you see a a kind of reduction in risk if you compared 60, 70 grams a day with, say, 10 grams a day. Now, that, 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 and we see some of that in Europe as well. And so that suggests that either there is genuinely just no effect or or potentially a benefit. Why could there be a benefit? Well, sometimes you see this reduced risk in women, and it may be related to actually heme iron. So heme, heme iron is a real double-edged sword here because right. in high levels and high consistent amounts in a diet that's high in red meat, there it may have some advert. But in women, because it, particularly in reproductive years, because of menstruation, lower iron levels, higher iron recommendations, maybe there's a benefit. And interestingly, a recent study, and in two recent studies, I think can help us piece this puzzle together a bit more. One was an analysis of of the EPIC cohort, which is in the state, which is in Europe. And although the average intakes, like I said, in Europe are are kind of low enough, you know, in in men, it's like 100 maybe grams a day, give or take. And in women, it's about 65. And that's the the whole cohort, right? And so the EPIC cohort has people from 10 different European countries. So you might get as low as 20 grams a day in some countries like Greece, or you might get up to 70, kind of 80 grams a day in like Denmark or Sweden. So... But they did have a small subgroup that were consuming about 160 grams a day. 
And compared to the lower intake, there was an increase in risk in that group. Now, it was kind of borderline insignificant. But why I thought that was interesting was because I was like, okay, that dose seems to be more consistent with what we see in some of the US cohorts. Mm. And then there was a study recently, which was really nice. It was the Alberta Tomorrow Project Canadian study. But rather than just adjust for fruit and vegetable intake statistically, which basically means you kind of look at the at whether the effect cancels out across your whole cohort, what they did was they looked at three different levels of unprocessed red meat intake and processed meat, but they looked at it relative to either low, moderate, or high fruit and vegetable intake. And in the group consuming 500 grams of red meat a week, now not a day, a week, high fruit and vegetable intake, there was no association. But in the group consuming the same amount of meat with the lowest fruit and vegetable intake, there was a significant increase in risk. So this suggests, so if we divide that into daily dose, give or take the average was 460 grams a week, probably about 60, 65 grams a day. That's more consistent with what we see in Epic and some of the some of the Asian cohorts. So I think for unprocessed red meat, there may be a dose threshold where consistently consuming higher amounts over like 160, 70, 80 grams a day might increase risk over time, even if someone's eating vegetables and fruit. But that more moderate intakes of kind of less than 100 grams a day or less than 500 grams a week may not increase risk once someone is eating high levels of fruit and vegetable. And Right now, I don't think we can resolve that either way. So what people tend to do is resolve it against their <laughs> the way they view <laughs> their yeah. own dietary beliefs. So you'll you'll get people in the plant-based community will say, well, it, there, it's still a risk. And you'll get people on the other side that will say, oh, there's no risk, just eat your fruits and vegetables. I, I personally don't think we can say that there is a risk at those thresholds of less than 100 grams a day at this point. But I don't think we can be entirely certain on that either. So I do think eating plenty of fruits and vegetables in the context of an otherwise healthy diet, I do think that some unprocessed red meat consumption can be occasionally consumed, but I would not be consuming high daily amounts of it, even if I had uh, you know, a, a, healthy, a healthy kind of wider diet pattern. Are there any theories in regards to like the mechanisms as to why like these higher intakes of, you know, 150, 160 grams would lead to those adverse outcomes? Is it something, is it something that is being promoted uh, relatively often within the plant-based community, such as like TMAO, which is, you know, Mm. one of those things that kind of crops up. Is there something around that as one of the mechanisms? Or I know we had a little bit of a chat over email around this. Um, and I'd, yeah. love to, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that one. So, so currently I am of the opinion, uh, and I, I'll articulate why I think the evidence supports this, that, that TMAO is a, is a red herring. Um, uh, it's been described as an independent causal risk factor that explains the connection between diet and cardiovascular disease that is mediated by the microbiota. Um, so, so you know, uh, that, that that's the kind of proposed causal chain. And yes, observationally, you can find associations between high levels of TMAO and cardiovascular disease. Um, the production of TMAO in humans does require gut bacteria, um, and they metabolize certain kind of nutrients that are generally found in animal products like carnitine or choline into trimethylamine, which is TMA. 
and that's absorbed by the liver and converted in the liver to TMAO. Uh, and that TMAO then appears in your in your blood circulating. Um, but there's a couple of there's a couple of holes in this in this story. Um, the first is that there are certain foods that are very high in preformed TMAO, uh, and fish is one of them. And fish is generally associated with reduced risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, there's also the fact that uh, a method of analysis known as Mendelian randomization, which is where you look at genetic uh, predispositions for a certain outcome. And uh, MR, are off, they're, they're very difficult studies to do properly. You need to be sure that your, your gene, for example, you're looking at a gene that increases risk or that increases blood TMAO levels, for example. Uh, you need to make sure that that gene isn't necessarily associated with other outcomes that could could interfere with your with your analysis. But the Mendelian randomization on increased levels of TMAO and a range of disease outcomes, coronary heart disease, stroke, um, heart attack, cardiovascular disease generally, um, show no causal relationship at all or proposed cause co- i'm loathe even with mendelian randomization i'm actually hesitant to use the word causal so i would say mm. they do not show a, an association a genetic association between high levels of plasma tmao and cardiovascular disease or even diabetes or, or otherwise and then the there's there's real in the intervention studies there's massive inconsistency in the and huge inter-individual response to feeding someone TMAO. And it means that there's, from short-term studies, the likelihood of a lot of false positives. Um, and so, you know, we've seen that. I remember one recent study which fed people kind of animal meats first and then, like, fed them plant meats afterwards. Um, and, you know, it's after consuming the plant meat, there was no change in TMAO. But after, if you consume the animal meats first, TMAO levels rose initially and then declined to similar levels as during the, the plant meat phase. So, you know, it's 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 there's a lot of inter-individual difference in response to that. Um, and it shows that, um, you know, our, our microbiota has often short-term responses to changes in diet and then they can they revert basically to to a stable composition once the intervention ends um so you know for example a study looked at uh beef eggs um fish and and fruit on tmao levels and found that high tmao producers had a particular ratio in of their gut bacteria which was high firmicutes and bacteroidetes right now, the reason this is important is because we see this ratio in people with obesity. We see this ratio in people with metabolic uh, disease. And it's it's a ratio that may be consequent on a certain dietary pattern, Western dietary pattern. It's a ratio, though, that also might be consequent on the actual metabolic state of the of the of the individual. Um and the and the final kind of piece that really just doesn't add up is that we've got a number of, of recent studies that um look at uh, TMAO levels being high in people with metabolic disease. Um, and so a kind of a more plausible, you know, theory is that, um, 
you know, uh, the, 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 the elevated levels of TMAO that we see, the reason they're associated with cardiovascular disease is because of the underlying Ill, Ill health of the individual um, and of the population studied. Um, there's too much uh, variability between people for it to be considered an independent causal risk factor, even if it even if it was, you know, the, the variation can differ between people between 30% and 270%. Um, and it's not particularly reproducible. So if I measured your TMAO levels now and measured them in a year's time, it could be, it could be all over the place. So it's not a use, it's not a particularly good biomarker for, for observational studies. Um, so, you know, yes, the production of, of TMA requires this, the microbiota and TMAO, um, does reflect liver detoxification of TMA, but it appears that TMAO is probably a proxy for metabolic dysfunction or the activity of certain bacteria in the gut, but it's not directly causal of disease itself. And it's difficult to support a claim that it exists, that it explains a causal link between a food and heart disease, given that, you know, again, like I said, fish contain very high levels of, 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 uh, preformed TMAO and they would be uh, associated with reduced risk. So I'm, I'm not convinced about TMAO at all. And I, I don't think a lot of people in the research community necessarily mm. are. I don't even think it's useful as a biomarker. I think if there is an, a link between unprocessed red meat consumption at these higher doses, I think it's more likely to relate to cooking methods, charring, um, and the production of, of, of potentially procarcinogenic compounds as a result of, say, grilling. And, um, you know, if you look at the associations in America, like it, it, that's, that's a very common cooking method there. I think you've also got the production. You, do, you don't have nitrates and nitrites in the concentrations you have in processed meat, but they are still present and they can interact with heme iron to form potentially carcinogenic compounds and of course there's the relationship between nitrates nitrites and cardiovascular disease itself and then i think even though it's often adjusted for i think that there's still the contribution of of high animal fat generally and saturated fat in particular to cardiovascular disease which which is something we do know um so i don't think it's tmao but i do think there are other mechanisms by which high you know, unprocessed meat consumption could still contribute to, to increased risk. And it relates mm. to, you know, heme, nitrates, nitrites, uh, saturated fat, animal fat generally, um, you know, and, and potentially, and, and again, exacerbated by the absence or, or low intakes of vegetables and fruit and fiber right. and all that good stuff. Yeah, that's awesome, Matt. I think one of the things that just popped up in my mind, I haven't actually thought about covering this, but is there the same kind of links there as you describe um, between heme iron and the nitrates and uh, potentially the, the saturated fat levels of animal products, um, and especially in, in like say a red meat product? Is that the same link that we would see in, say, a white meat product such as chicken? Because chicken is one of those ones that is kind of often used as like, hey, this is a really healthy option for a um, mm. you know someone who's going to go into a diet intervention. And they're like, hey, like, focus on lean, lean chicken because that's going to be really healthy yeah. for you. Is there any correlation that you've seen in the data in relation to some of those ideas and um, high chicken intakes? 
Yeah, well, so you, you, you know, obviously the, the color of the meat gives away its heme iron content, which is not very high. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, you don't tend to get the level of saturated fat in, you know, a chicken breast or turkey or white meat. Generally, you might get it in some of the kind of darker meat parts of, of a bird, but not particularly high. Um, and you don't get compounds like nitrates and, and nitrites, and you don't really get that, that kind of interaction effect. And so, yeah, generally, you okay. know, the substitution analyses, if you replace red meat with white meat, that there's a benefit there. You know, there's there's a reduction in risk for people doing that. Um, so, I mean, overall, you know, yes, is, 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 it, is it considered a beneficial substitution for people in omnivorous diets to replace red meat with white meat that that would appear to be present in the data yeah sure mm. awesome yeah that's great thanks for clearing that one up um i guess you know if we move on into um dairy intakes and this is this is one that i think you know most people can probably agree that there are significant issues with the way that we are uh, producing dairy um, in terms of the ethical components and of course the environmental side of dairy production um but if we kind of put that aside, you know, as um, as something to cover at another time, and we look at it purely from a human health perspective, um, there's often, you know, arguments that, you know, we're not made to drink milk from another animal or, you know, we, we wean off milk at a young age. And then, you know, there are obviously yeah. there's a certain percentage of the population who don't have the enzyme to be able to digest um, lactose and, and this type of thing. But then there's often the, the big ones are thrown out around like hormones and dairy and, yeah. you know, and its effects on different cancers. So, mm. um, you know, this is obviously something you've seen a lot of yourself. What yeah. do you make of some of these claims? Um, and I know that even from reading the Sigma statement on dairy, there is a lot of nuance to dairy just in terms of yeah. dairy is such an umbrella term. And we're, we're talking mm. about cheese. We're talking about yogurt. We're talking about low fat products. Um, so yeah, what are your what are your thoughts on these yeah. claims, mate? I I find dairy almost elicits more of a kind of visceral, like, revulsion in the plant based community <laughs> than even re red meat. Like it's it's bizarre, and some of the, I mean, the, the whole like we're not designed to eat, you know, like what are we designed to press <laughs> olives into an oil? Like, are we, you know, yeah. it's it's just a non sequitur of an argument. Um, mm. And, oh, we wean off dairy. Says who? Like populations, there are numerous populations in the world that don't ever wean off dairy. And two of them are blue zones populations where, you know, a quarter of their total daily energy intake comes from, from dairy produce, Costa Rica and, uh, and, and, and Greece. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the, yeah, sure, there are certain populations that have a genetic insufficiency of the lactase enzyme. That's, that's, that's 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 not that's not the poor dairy's fault. Like it's that's a deficiency of an enzyme responsible for breaking down sugar. Interestingly, there, there's there's the potential for even in those populations to 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 be okay with dairy consumption. Um, you know, we see massive increase in prevalence of dairy consumption in 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 East Asia. You know, um, particularly over the what they call the nutrition transition, like. So yeah. a lot of increase in kind of milk and dairy produce consumption and in a population with low, you know, um, prevalence of, of kind of lactase 
uh, adaptation. So yeah, some of those kind of, you know, uh, we're not designed for this or, or, you know, it's only for weaning babies and stuff. I mean, that they're just, they're, they're non, they're nonsense, they're nonsense arguments. Um, but unfortunately they, they weave their way into the discussion. So yeah, I, I try not to get bogged down in that at all. And, and, mm. and yeah, like, I mean, to your point, it's, it's absolutely, it is important even, you know, with the red meat aspect of the conversation we're having, yes, there are environmental and ethical considerations that we do need to consider. But the problem, I think, and coming back to this talk of why do we, why do you have people say within the plant-based community that are kind of happy to, you know, to mount some of these fairly spurious kind of arguments and claims is, I think it's where that moral ethical aspect gets mixed up and people have a difficulty separating an objective assessment of the evidence of health effects from the moral and ethical implications of consumption, um, and they 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 should be considered together. But but first, the evidential assessment of the health effects has to happen independent of that. And then we can discuss, you know, what what might be the considerations for including or excluding or having some um, and and what have you. So with dairy, you know. It's it's a funny one. I mean, does does dairy cause? If you really appraised the the literature for dairy and cancer, I think people would be surprised. I mean, the strongest it's one of the food groups that has the most consistent and strongest reductions in risk for colorectal cancer, uh, and that's been acknowledged by the World Cancer Research Fund, the IARC, and otherwise. Like, so dairy reliably and predictably over time reduces risk of, of colorectal cancer. Um, with prostate cancer, it's, it's, it's murky. There's been suggested mm. increases in risk that may be meted, mediated by IGF-1, but it's not particularly consistent, but there could be an increase in risk. Um, and with breast cancer, um, it, that's mixed, but it's actually overall in favor of a reduction in risk. And that that's often stronger in certain estrogen receptor uh, types, um, certain certain kind of um, genetic, some of the genetic aspects of breast cancer. So, you know, it do hormones and antibiotics in milk cause cancer? Well, one, the levels of hormones and antibiotics in, mi- in, in milk that are used as, as part of the the husbandry process um, are essentially undetectable as far as as human effects go, as far as we know. And we 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 the safety thresholds are established not by nutrition science necessarily, but by toxicology. Um, mm-hmm. And it's the same process that informs how much artificial sweeteners, for example, we can have in 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 soda or you know diet sodas and stuff like that. So it's identifying where risks may lie, and it's deeming certain thresholds and and this is what i think people because we see this happen in the artificial sweeteners conversation all the time just because something's present doesn't mean it's having an effect just because there could be trace levels of 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 an, of an antibiotic in a, in in a sample of milk uh, doesn't necessarily mean it's of any sort of threshold that's a worry for for human health outcomes um, and we would have fairly reckless uh, food regulatory systems if that were if that were to be the case so you know and 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 again if we just focus on human outcome data well then then you don't see this you know ubiquitous cancerous onslaught from 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 the dairy um actually on the whole you would see certainly strong reductions in colorectal cancer 
some reductions in breast cancer risk that are stronger in certain estrogen receptor type subtypes and prostate cancer, perhaps an increase in risk. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's nuanced and it's, uh, if it is, if that, if that increase is, is present in relation to prostate cancer, then it's not mediated by hormones or antibiotics. It's potentially mediated by the anabolic effects of, 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 of dairy on, on IGF-1 signaling. Now, people take that and grossly over-extrapolate it and say, well, IGF-1, uh, you know, kind of, you know, feeds cancers or drives cancers. Therefore, anything that increases IGF-1 is, is pro-carcinogenic. That's, that's just faulty reasoning um, because that's, that's obviously not what we see in terms of longer-term human outcomes. So, um, yeah, I think, I think that dairy, unfortunately, I, I think we need to, you, you touched on this and it is an important point, like dairy is an, a broad food group. Um, and so when I make these comments about the kind of overall uh, associations for dairy, I'm generally talking about particular foods, yogurt, milk, and cheese. Um, and I'm certainly not referring to butter, which, you know, does not have the characteristics that those foods have, particularly yogurt and cheese. And there's the added dimension of fermentation, which um, means that even people who, for example, have reduced activity of the lactase enzyme may actually tolerate fermented dairy foods better um, be because the fermentation um, kind of alters the the the, the kind of um, the the qualities of the food, so to speak. So, and they have other properties as well, calcium and and otherwise that that kind of all interact together in this food matrix. So, you know, whereas butter mm -hmm. doesn't have these characteristics and is really just rich in saturated fat, and putting it in your coffee is a bad idea. And high levels of butter <laughs> would, I would argue, certainly increase your risk of of cardiovascular disease. So. So dairy is is a is a very broad term, and when it comes to the health effects, the most consistent and strongest um, would be for yogurt and and cheese. Um, milk is kind of neutral. Uh, depends on the study and the and the population, but it's kind of neutral. There's some good evidence that low fat milk reduces risk of diabetes. Um, you know, why low fat versus non-fat? Is it the contribution of additional saturated fat in the whole fat milk? Not really sure. And then you can find some observations that are kind of neutral for, for whole milk as well, like full fat milk. So um, they would be the three foods um, that, that, that would, they, these associations would be kind of present for. And then, yeah, foods like butter, um, you know, there, there's a lot of interest in kefir, which is like a fermented milk. It's common in kind of Eastern Europe and, uh, and Turkey. And um, the big interest in that is gut health. Uh, probably we're, we're just not really at a, at a point of, of being able to make conclusions from the evidence there either way, one way or the other. Um, it might reduce lactose intolerance. And there's some evidence that it might reduce H. pylori infection, like these um, stomach infections. But, but really, that's all very kind of early doors human research. And there's no way we can make a conclusion one way or the other yet of whether it is good for gut health. Um, mm. So, yeah, I think I think dairy, I, I think the problem with it as well is, is, is you know, within the plant base. I mean, I tuned into a, a clubhouse talk a few weeks ago that had a, a couple of the game changers athletes on it and just mm -hmm. the absolute crap. Uh, like, sorry, I don't want to. <sighs> 
this, this is difficult because, you know, they're, they're billing it as their lived experience, right? So I don't want to say that their lived experience is crap, but it's the way it's framed as like, I stopped eating dairy and I could feel, you know, my body cleanse. It's like, uh, I'm yeah, going to call, yeah. what do you mean? You could feel your body yeah. cleanse, cleanse of what, you know? And, the, <laughs> and then they, and then they pull a veil of science over it, you know? And then you've David Katz there to kind of give them a veneer of legitimacy of what they're saying. And I was like, this is horrible to listen to, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, because, because for everyone that does that within the plant-based community about dairy, we can go out and find, someone on a carnivore diet that will tell us their arthritis disappeared and all their joints healed. Like this is why we don't rely on anecdotes, whether they're an yeah. Olympic athlete or just average Joe in the street. I don't care about anecdotes. <laughs> like, That's right. um, but, but I think we have a lot of, uh, we have a lot of blurring of those lines within the plant-based community where everyone's almost happy to rely on someone's anecdote over any, and evidence and that's that's not unique yeah. to the plant-based community i will no. say the low carbers are just as bad for oh i go by the evidence i see well yeah that's that's the kind of stuff that leads us to quackery <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i don't know if you've looked into this at all alan but that it just reminded me of like the the idea that you know a lot of people suffer from things like acne or asthma or respiratory problems and then they have these anecdotal experiences of removing dairy and suddenly skin clears up or they feel like they have um, an easier time breathing and these types of things. Have you ever seen, Have you? I mean, have you heard those statements yourself in terms of yes. anecdote? And then, yeah. Have you seen anything so on I have, that? And, uh, so I was actually, I have a good friend of mine uh, here in the UK as a, as a consultant dermatologist. And um, uh, before COVID, was, um, she'd asked me to, if I'd be, uh, happy to prepare a kind of a presentation at a conference, a derm conference on nutrition and skin. And I, I'd never delved into that literature before. I was like, okay, so this will be interesting. Yeah. Um, Great. So, so with acne, with acne, um, there are some associations uh, with high levels of dairy consumption. Uh, some of them are inseparable from high levels of whey protein consumption. Um, and they're almost always in kind of like, either adolescence or, or early teens and and there's a lot to pick apart that that is difficult with with identifying dairy i mean there's the fact that they're going through a natural phase of exploded androgens anyway um there's certainly in terms of clinical dermatology my understanding is most dermatologists will see if someone's like really high use of whey protein shakes and discontinuing whey protein shakes may may result in an improvement in in acne symptoms. But as mm. far as eliminating or eradicating dairy as a mm. food, that's really inconsistent. Uh, it may relate to to dose, like how much is someone consuming? Are they consuming two hundred grams of a yogurt a day, or are they consuming a liter of milk? You know, they're not the mm. same <laughs> yeah. exposure, so to speak. Um, and it's also difficult to pick apart the 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 potential interaction with their kind of with their hormonal state that they're that they're in, so to speak. So th there are some. The evidence is very very weak, very weak. Mm -hmm. uh, but there is some evidence, and I know that you know certainly clinically, I think dermatologists are often open to at least trialing a period of of dairy free, and if nothing improves, 
you know, there's, there's no point in continuing. The respiratory yeah. stuff, there is a little more evidence in terms of, um, you know, intervention. And, and it's really difficult to, there's, there is that anecdote and that anecdote appears consistent, but there's, there's no evidence that dairy actually increases mucus production, for example, or otherwise. Um, and so there's, there's another theory in all of this, which is uh, the potential for what people are experiencing, not necessarily to be the cause of kind of dairy per se, but poorly calibrated immune systems. So, Dietary uh, kind of potential antigens uh, are all pretty common and we know. So, for example, development of kind of food intolerances or allergies in children, it's it's always the same, right? It's like tree nuts, peanuts, milk, um, and then shellfish in adulthood. There's a couple of other foods, right? And the reason that the, the same foods are the most common culprits for kind of adverse reactions to foods is because of the molecular weight uh, of their proteins um, and soy as well. Sorry. So it, 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 it may be that that's the case. It's just dairy is more ubiquitously consumed than, you know, shellfish or otherwise. Um, but if people, you know, weren't, uh, and again, everything I'm suggesting here is, 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 is kind of um, hypothetical and there isn't great evidence for this. But it's if people are exposed sufficiently to some of these to some of these foods, particularly dairy, like mo- the vast majority of children or infants that have cow's milk allergy will grow out of it and acquire immune tolerance to cow's milk over mm. time. So maybe is there a proportion of people that 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 kind of don't fully and have residual symptoms or you know otherwise a kind of a little bit of an immune response? Maybe there, there's some gaps in our knowledge there, and I. I'm always loath to fill in gaps with something certain. But the one thing that, yeah. that does appear clear is that it's very difficult to, to see any actual evidence that supports that dairy does like increase mucus production or anything like that. So, mm. you know, um, cautious, ca- cautious about that as an anecdote. I think maybe it relates more to kind of you know, more immune system stuff. And it's, it's interesting. To, it would be interesting to see studies that look across reactivity, like to people who self-report that, um, uh, you know, also, uh, uh, re- you know, have a difficulty, for example, with like peanuts or otherwise. But I'll, I'll tell you one piece of of of, of evidence that I, f- I find really kind of interesting in all of this. And like we talk about the placebo effect all the time. There's also a thing called the nocebo effect, right? <laughs> you convince yourself like, you know, something bad's going to happen, right? Right. You know, uh, uh, so, right. <laughs> So there was an interesting study. There was a, there was a, there was a study that surveyed um, raw milk consumers in America and asked them why why they consumed. It was a survey, but they said why why do you consume raw milk? Some people were like supports local farmers, environment, all that. But the majority were like, oh, it's because I can't tolerate uh, you know pasteurized homogenized milk. Okay, so this is a really interesting study that a group at Stanford did where they got like organic raw cow's milk and also organic pasteurized cow's milk in people who like self-reported as like dairy, you know, intolerant, so to speak. And they did test them beforehand to confirm that they were like, there was, there was people who were lactose intolerant and weren't. Um, and in, interestingly, like, you know, the, the raw milk resulted in more hydrogen production than the, 
than the than the than the commercial milks, shall we say? And like, I, I remember reading that and just thinking, I reckon there's a lot of people who convince themselves that they have a problem with with dairy, or or, or other foods, for example. Yeah. Um, yeah. And are and consume it and then just sit there and interpret every grumble in their stomach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or like, yeah. so here here's an example, right? Do, I I I live in an area of London with amazing like South Asian food, like Indian restaurants, like Punjabi, Sri Lankan restaurants, right? Gotcha. I'll go around, I'll eat a eat a eat a eat a hot eat a hot dish. My nose will stream, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm not taking to I, honestly I'm in the bathroom and I'm just like, I didn't realize that was like, <laughs> I'm not on Instagram telling everyone that my nose is streaming because I'm allergic to yeah <laughs> because you're turmeric to, like just Sri Lankan you know yeah. I'm like yeah. oh I'm 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 sweating you know my nose has got that like bit of sweat on it because like you know, it's just like heat from it you know yes yes I'm not, oh my god I've started sweating after I ate this food you know it's like so. I, d- I think a lot of people just absolutely nocebo affect themselves when it comes to dairy. I think you, I think you see the same thing with like gluten as well, right? It's the same sort of idea, it's, right? Yeah, you know, oh, I can't tolerate that, bread. I'm bloated. Yeah, yeah. and it's like, oh, well, there's <laughs> yeah. a certain natural bloating response to eating, right? Like, you know, like there's a there's yeah. a normal part of human physiology, so. Um, yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a really big point. And I think a, a lot of people just, just, just don't even think about the fact that there is a nocebo and it's very, um, strong. It's likely very strong. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. and I think also, you know, when we, if we, you know, come to wrap up dear, I think the, the idea, um, I think people do forget is that dairy is one of those those products that if we're looking at global like human survival it's one of those products that in many different areas around the world is just essential for providing essential nutrients to you know to children that potentially don't have access to the plethora of of food that we have in the western world you know and so if they've got a a cow out back that they can get dairy from then that's going to you know hopefully avoid some of those like stunting deficiencies that we might see yeah, yeah, that, and that's clear. And some of the, some of the, I, I was at a, a conference again pre pre lockdown, but uh, one of the researchers there was doing stable isotope tracer studies, uh, which are really accurate ways now, really great advancement in nutrition science of like looking at how something's digested and absorbed. They were doing studies in India, um, and they these were communities essentially that they were technically lacto vegetarian. Um, but because of Indian government policies and all this other red tape crap, they weren't really having access to eggs and dairy in the way that they would usually incorporate it into their diet. So their diet was basically relying on like mung beans and one or two other staples. And stunting was a major issue okay. uh, because the quality of the dietary protein that they were getting. And, and I remember mm. one of his papers was saying that just 200 mils of milk a day in that population would be sufficient to prevent stunting so yeah i think that's a really important point you raise and most of these conversations that we have i always hear that like people in the plant the world needs to eat a plant-based diet i'm like the world (laughs) does eat a plant-based diet it's called food insecurity (laughs) like like it's just that level of you know detachment that i think yeah is is present again not just within you know the plant-based but generally when it comes so i see this with 
arguments about because I, I I don't know if you you read the article on my blog about like poverty and 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 diet and I was you know I get into this argument all the time from some bro who literally lives in a gym and training and training people and you know like has the capacity to meal prep and all this kind of stuff and he's like you know people just need to be more responsible i'm like ah so yeah, yeah. We, we we see we see this lack of genuine awareness for for a lot of issues in nutrition and that affect what's people on people's day plate and what's best for them a lot in conversations about nutrition and uh I think a lot of what we're talking about now in terms of the considerations for plant-based diets, plant predominant or whatever label it gets, are very much kind of confined to, for the most part, the the, the kind of the West, so to speak, or yeah. some of the bigger uh, kind of Asian economies, because they're the ones responsible for the carbon footprint. Right. They're the ones with these dietary patterns that can benefit from altering the food supply and, and mm. reducing some of the contributions to these emissions. So, you know, the rest of the world's already plant-based. Don't worry. <laughs> they just don't yeah. have enough to eat, you know? Yeah. So. 100%. Yeah. And that's the, that's, it's a common discussion I have because it's, it's something I've never promoted is the whole idea that, yeah, everyone should be vegan or everyone should be plant-based because it's just another reality of, of how people are living around the world. But people, they're only just looking at their situation or, you know, the, the fact that they live in America or they live in New Zealand or they live in Ireland, you know, where these, these issues aren't, aren't such a big deal, you know? Um, so yeah. I, yeah, it comes back to a context, right? It comes back to how we're assessing these things and applying it to different areas and different ethnicities, um, mm -hmm. around the globe. Um, I did want to quickly touch on with you, Alan, um, with fish, right? So yes, our community is pretty aware of the, the benefits of omega threes in the diet. And, you know, they will mm. prioritize a, a, a certain level of ALA based omega threes, whether it's through cheer or fl ground flax or, or things like this or walnuts. Mm -hmm. um, and then many people will actually end up supplementing with an omega three um, algae based supplement as well, which is, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, but would you see these, these benefits of consuming fish that would, be outside of consuming omega-3 intake um, from the fish um, or even just the protein intake from the fish um, that would warrant somebody going, hey, look, I'm going to include fish in my diet um, for that reason. Yeah, I mean, the, the only thing is the potential, you know, what, a big focus of nutrition in recent years has been like the concept of the food matrix, right? You know, it does the biological activity of a nutrient is it influenced by the, the characteristics of a food itself that the nutrient comes in? And we do have evidence right. that that is the case. Food, what we would call food synergy, you know? And so my, my only thing would be that in, you know, a lot of the long-term studies that we have are looking at fish consumption. Now, you're trying to isolate the effects of EPA and DHA, and those two fatty acids, I think we can break it down into life stages, right? I, I think most people, I would hope anyway, in the plant-based community, accept that DHA is, is essential for infant brain development and that, you know, a vegan pregnant mother should supplement with a direct source of DHA, right? right? I'd hope that's accepted within the community. And then we, if we go to the end of the kind of life stage, so to speak, later on in life, well, 
you know, that the associations between DHA and reduced risk of Alzheimer's and dementia are, are, are consistent. And we see them in different populations. We see them if you do an autopsy study, where you get people's brains who died of Alzheimer's versus died of like health, you know, just normal. And you look at their brain levels of DHA and omega-3 fatty acids. The big question and what I see people in the plant-based community argue is, well, there's no evidence of a benefit in healthy people in the middle of their life. Well, the problem is nutrients don't exist as either, you know, you're, you're, you're taking it or, or not, right? N- nutrients exist on a, on a bell curve, right? Of, of, of we have inadequacy or deficiency, and then we have adequacy, and then we have excess potentially or toxicity, mm. right? Mm. Now, most conditions of deficiency have been eradicated in, the pop- in, in Western countries in the population for the most part. But one of the limit, one of, and this is a known kind of challenge for nutrition science, and we see this, I can name numerous examples of what I'm about to say, either related to vitamin E or vitamin T or otherwise, if, you, if you're doing short-term interventions, which is where most of our evidence for otherwise healthy people come from, and everyone already has relatively adequate intakes of a nutrient, giving them more of that does not mean that there's a benefit, right? Once you've got adequate, in- generally, we tend to see effects where someone has insufficient levels of intake. Um, but unfortunately, for multiple reasons, like, for example, ethics committees will often not allow you to recruit people who are deficient in a nutrient. So it becomes difficult. So we do these studies in nutrition. It's like, oh, there wasn't really that much of, or even if there was a little effect, it was quite small. But but that's often because we're doing trials in otherwise healthy people who have sufficient levels of intake of whatever that given nutrient is. My 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 worry is that cumulatively, all of the evidence that we have for EPA and DHA would suggest that some is better than none, and more is better than less now do you does someone have to consume fish to get that benefit the short answer is maybe not and arguably not but what we do know from short-term interventions is that ala might cover your basis for epa but it doesn't really seem to cover basis for dha in fact it may actually drive down dha levels okay the conversion process in humans is low so for everyone arguing that we've no evidence of a benefit in healthy people, the logical corollary to that is we also have don't have evidence that it's not a risk over the long term to deliberately omit direct sources of a nutrient. Right. Right. Those, those two criticisms go hand in hand and you can't mm. have one without the other. Mm. And so I tend to find myself now encouraging people following exclusively plant-based diets, not to obviously consume fish because they you know, don't want to give advice that's inconsistent with their moral or ethical um, choices right. or otherwise, or environmental even. Yep. But I do think it's a good idea. I do think it's a good idea to consume some preformed DHA uh, as a way of, just as an insurance policy. And put it this way, maybe I'm wrong, right? But if we take two people, right, and one saying some preformed DHA would be good and the other saying, don't bother, you're fine, you're healthy. Well, in 20 years time, if I'm wrong, someone's wasted a bit of money on a supplement. If, If the other person's wrong, well, then someone's increased their risk of an adverse, particularly neurological health outcome. 
So, you know, whether we measure tissue levels of omega-3s as biomarkers in the blood, whether we look at tissue levels in the brain, which is where DHA is highly concentrated, like like I said, all of the data points to some being better than none mm. and, and more being better than less. Mm. And we don't really have any any good evidence that high levels of ALA alone are sufficient to maintain that over the long term. So it's purely an insurance policy. And mm. I could be wrong in 20 years time. And, and maybe I am. I don't know. But I think from a population health perspective and from a public health perspective, you need good evidence to deliberately omit any direct sources of a nutrient for which we have evidence of benefit overall. Mm. Um, And in the absence of that, then I think the precautionary principle applies. So I'm not arguing that my position is entirely, all all I'm arguing for is the precautionary principle should, should apply here. I guess one of the other claims that comes up with um, fish intake is like toxicity levels, um, pollutants, mercury, Mm, these types of discussions. Um, And I'm not sure if you've seen it, but the most recent documentary, Seaspiracy on Netflix, another one that's been, you know, uh, making the rounds. I don't watch Netflix documentaries. (laughs) Hey, fair enough. (laughs) Yeah. I, um... (laughs) I kind of wish I'd bring myself to. Yeah, I can't bring myself to. Yeah, um, what the hell for me? I've even heard people in the plant-based community say Seaspiracy was awful. It's just George Monbiot on a self-righteous quest, and really, just yeah. Anyway, so yeah, it's 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 a tricky one um, because I mean, for the average, I think for the average person, when they watch something like that, it's uh, it's oh, it's it's emotional. It's yeah, it, it's emotional, and it gets people. Um, I don't know. It's very easy to just get caught up in it all and get dragged along yeah. and not really be able to think too critically about the whole situation. Um, sure, but you know, with yeah, with with documentaries like this coming out, and you know, obviously, again, we have to we have to take into account the the environmental side of this whole discussion, and you know, we can look at it from that perspective and people can make up their own minds in regards to what they're going to consume based on how, um, you know, how sure. our, how we source our food is, is affecting our, our planet and how it's affecting um, the other sentient beings that inhabits it. But when we look at the, yeah, like I guess the pollutant side, mercury side, is this something you would suggest people are looking out for when they're selecting fish into their diet if they decided hey look i'm going to include some some salmon because i want to you know get that precautionary idea of getting some omega yeah. threes in my diet are they going to be sabotaging some other area of health v- via uh high mercury import or high pollutants yeah well, I, and actually, just to clarify, when I was saying direct source of DHA, like a, an algae supplement, absolutely fine. You know, like, I mean, that's that's a good way to go. And it's great that, that that's now accessible for people. Um, but so on the environmental pollutants, there's uh, one of the, the main nutrition and brain health researchers who unfortunately passed away last year quite, quite early, Martha Claire Morris from Rush University in Chicago. So she, she did a number of, of interesting studies with uh, autopsy brains. And one of which looked at the brains of people who had died healthy and compared them. These were people from a cohort study she was doing in Chicago. And so they'd obviously given consent for, for, the, for the brain to be looked at afterwards. Um, and she also compared them to people who had died from the cohort with Alzheimer's disease and dementia. 
And what was interesting was mercury levels, brain mercury levels were higher in the healthy participants. But those healthy participants also had higher brain levels of omega-3s and also vitamin E. And and the take-home point appeared to be that actually – you're better off just getting your <laughs> your long chain omega threes, right? And, and 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 vitamin E as well was a big big thing that came through in her research. Okay, then worrying about some some levels. Now there are different, particularly, and again, this is something I never have to consider because I live kind of in the in the in the Atlantic kind of you know North North Sea kind of area of the world. But I do know that certain Pacific fish, like if you lived in California or maybe in Australia and New Zealand, there's access to these kind of very high mercury fish, like swordfish, for example. Um, maybe don't go eating huge amounts of that. But in mm-hmm. terms of like salmon, uh, mackerel, sardines and other omega-3 rich sources, fish sources, like I would say it's not even a concern worth worth worrying about. And you would be better off just getting your oily fit and the thing about the public health recommendations for oily fish consumption is one they're they're pretty evidence-based based on what we see in kind of long-term studies but two it's not that much um it's why you know even from an environmental perspective like the footprint of eating two servings of mackerel a week is mi- minimal and you know um even in the UK off the coast, there's there's some really good like farmed fishing going on, which the technology for that is getting improved all the time. So anyway, but point being, would someone who is eating two servings of oily fish a week worry about mercury? No. No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, they're getting the benefit of 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 the uh, of the omega threes. Brilliant. Well, I think look, we've covered some really good ground here, Alan. And I do wanna before I sort of let you go, I wanna ask you one sort of final um, question in regards to um, diet and human health. And this is one that um, I still see coming up quite a bit. And you actually mentioned it earlier in regards to IGF-1. Um, and the 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 current, the current sort of idea I see being promoted, um, and I discussed this a little bit with Eric Helms when he came on, is around leucine intake in our food Hmm. and you know these high doses of leucine whether from animal products or even if i'm consuming uh, a plant diet where i'm trying to promote muscle growth and i'm enhancing my leucine content through combination of various proteins um and this effect of high leucine on igf1 and increased cancer risk is this something you've seen as well and is this something you have seen any data to support I, I certainly haven't seen any data on it yet, and uh, Eric would be far well uh, more well versed in kind of protein metabolism literature than I have. But but I've it, it, just conversations like the mechanistic plausibility is if if we're going to make that case that it is this this pathway of kind of leucine induced IGF one, then the idea that that couldn't happen just because the sources of protein are plant based is to me. It, well, illogical <laughs> mm. um you know it, it's 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 if someone was if that was the mechanism if someone was consuming sufficient amounts to trigger that mechanism well then it wouldn't really matter necessarily what the diet is because the mechanism is the is the potential kind of causal pathway so to speak yes. so yeah but i i haven't seen anything convi- i'm also just not sold on this whole worrying about igf1 thing i mean mm. I would rather like 
in terms of data on longevity, and I'm not talking about the crazy keto like longevity stuff where they're like, oh, just don't eat for five days and fast and bulletproof coffee and you live to I'm just genuine <laughs> longevity, like healthy older populations, health span. Yes. I'd rather preserve muscle mass and and musculoskeletal integrity and take my bets on that, given everything we know about the detrimental effects of age-related sarcopenia and otherwise. I would rather be you know, like muscular and preserved musculoskeletal integrity into my 50s and 60s and take my chances with that and my health than worry about IGF-1 <laughs> and be, be yeah, you know, be a, a, a sarcopenic 60-year-old. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know? So it's just some things that we just step back and kind of think more like, yeah. you know, about what actually, what do we actually know at a simple level about things that associate with good aging and being healthy and it's physical activity and it's maintaining musculoskeletal, you know, mass and health. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't see how, how trying to keep IGF one low my <laughs> one's whole life is conducive to, to any of that stuff <laughs> as yeah. far as outcomes. Yeah. Cool. I, li- I like that insight. That, um, so your take on that, I think, you know, I think for a lot of, you know, with when I'm working with clients or even just talking with people, I always have to remind people that, you know, we, we're not eating individual like amino acids and we're not eating like right. individual nutrients, right? We're eating food and they, and they contain a, a whole range of these, these different things. But if we kind of step back, kind of take a little more bird's eye view of our, of our dietary pattern and go, okay, what is, what is the overarching theme here? And just like you were discussing in relation to like the red meat intake, it's like a lot of this is, you know, it's, it's moderation in some sense, but it's also including a, a fair amount of, um, your plant-based foods as well, and, yeah. and and that seems to maybe potentially mediate some of these effects. Um, and so I was looking at that dietary pattern. Um, and so I mm. guess f- for you, Alan, maybe in as and and I thought this would be kind of cool to hear from you is like maybe in as few words <laughs> as possible, what would you suggest is the 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 most well-balanced and nutritionally adequate diet you could recommend to somebody? Yeah. Oh. I just really do think that depends. Um, I think it depends on the needs of the, of the person. I mean, in general, I would say that there's a kind of easy answer of like a diet that obviously covers basis for nutritional adequacy across a range of, of things that we know to be associated with health, adequate protein, high dietary fiber, more unsaturated fats than saturated, um, you know, good amount of polyunsaturated fats, a lot of monounsaturated fats, this kind of thing, and from plant and marine sources in terms of poly and monounsaturated fats. Um, and, you know, if we describe diet in terms of those characteristics, then what I like about human nutrition and the varying nature of diets throughout cultures throughout the world is there are a lot of ways to skin that cat mm. in terms of food choice. So, so I'm, I'm kind of always loath to fill in the detail about the food choices because if those characteristics are present, well, then I think there are a lot of ways to meet it with different food choices, um, you know, and, and then with, with diets that are kind of exclusive, uh, you know, like a vegan, a fully vegan diet, are there some additional considerations? Yes, absolutely. I think even with the recent... Um, a couple of fracture studies, like is a good idea for vegans to supplement with calcium and vitamin D 
it 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 looks like it probably is for bone health right now. Is it a good idea to supplement with a direct source of EPA and DHA? Well, we don't have that data the way we do with calcium and vitamin D in bones, but it might be a precautionary principle. Mm. But otherwise, is there anything that vegan diets, or obviously B12, I, I think is just accepted. Right. Is there anything else that needs really filling? Like, I, I'm not convinced that there's really any other nutrient on a vegan diet. Otherwise, if people, you'll always see people talk about like zinc and stuff. I'm like, nah, yes. I, I don't think, I, I don't think any of those are nutrients of, of, of kind of interest. You know, for people eating omnivorous diets, like there's often this tendency to just kind of conflate the standard Western diet. <laughs> Yes, with like you know a, a diet that is in, inclusive of of meat, you know, and I, I got my parents live in the south of Spain, you know, and if I go right. down there and I I see that diet by the coast and like just the the fish and yeah, there's cured meat and stuff, but like just the richness of the color in the diet and the right. you know the yeah. amount of vegetable and like it's such a great what a what a dietary pattern, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's lovely. Yes, um, so I, I think there are. I think there are a lot of ways to meet those nutritional characteristics. And right now, are the environmental considerations important? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, so, but there are, for people that do have the capacity, uh, I think there are, are ways, you know, now to, to make the transition smoother. I mean, some of the, some of the plant meat alternatives are, are really good, um, you know, and you know, I, I think whether the decision for someone including some meat or no meat or some dairy or no dairy or some fish or no fish, I would rather that be based on a decision that's congruent with their moral ethic and perhaps environmental considerations and also the health considerations. But I'd rather that the evaluation of the health consideration be more objective than it is now. Um, as between both the plant-based and the kind of like extreme low-carb kind of carnivore communities, n- neither of which are, I think, very helpful to what just your average Joe in the population is trying to do to improve their diet and their health. Right. You know? right. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a brilliant way to wrap this one up, Alan. So thank you so much for for your time here and for giving us so much insight, man. It's been brilliant. Um, I want to give you that opportunity to to plug anything that you want to plug, maybe the 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 work you're doing at the moment or what you've going on in the, the coming months, let us know. Yeah. So, I mean, you can kind of find me online um, on Instagram really is the only social media account I have at the nutritional underscore advocate. Um, you can find me at my own website, which is alinea nutrition.com. Um, and then you can also find me on Sigma Nutrition, where, uh, as you said earlier, producing these um, statements on various questions. And Danny and myself record a couple of podcasts every month, and we we drip them out every every second week or so. So, yeah, there's uh, hopefully enough there for uh, for me to haunt people with (laughs) (laughs) i I have to say i do really enjoy those episodes of you and danny and even just you know the little segments the quack asylum and you know quack asylum so good these are fun so i think it's a great addition to the to the podcast um and definitely keep those ones coming man we will indeed brilliant man hey well i will let you i'll let you get out of here thanks so much for coming on again and um we will speak again soon i'm sure Yeah, my pleasure, Jackson. Thanks for having me.
So, I don't actually know how to summarize this thing because there's a lot of information in there. There's a lot of nuance. And even if you don't take anything uh, incredibly scientific away from this discussion, I hope that it just opened your eyes to the idea that we can't make blanket one-size-fits-all statements around human health and nutrition science. If I was trying to summarize this thing, when we look at red meat, there seems to be a dose threshold of consistent intakes over 160 grams per day, increasing risk of disease. But intakes of under 100 grams per day with high amounts of vegetables and fruit may not increase risk. And we can't forget the impact that high saturated fat content animal foods, such as your fatty meats, fatty red meats, the impact that they have on increased LDL cholesterol and increased cardiovascular disease risk. And this is all exacerbated by low intakes of fruit, vegetables, and fiber. So if you or someone you know is consuming red meat in quantities above 160 grams per day without adequate fruit and vegetable intake, you could potentially suggest that they aim to reduce that slightly and encourage a diet that is adequate in whole grains, fruits, nuts, vegetables, etc. When it comes to dairy, it's incredibly nuanced. There's reliable reduced risk of colorectal cancer with dairy products such as cheese and yogurt. There is mixed data on breast cancer, but often it's in favor of risk reduction. And when it comes to prostate cancer, it is a slight potential increase of risk there. When we look at antibiotics and hormones and milks, it's essentially undetectable as far as human effects go. Just because something is present, it does not mean it's having an effect. So I don't think we have to be incredibly worried about the hormonal effects of the milk we're consuming. However, of course, there are huge implications of the animal welfare and environmental costs of dairy production. And I think for that reason alone, avoiding or reducing dairy as much as possible in your diet is an absolute must. One cool thing that we did touch on and Alan gave some great insight on is dairy and acne. It seems that there are some associations between dairy and acne and it's often compounded by the effects of high whey protein consumption. So if you or someone you know is suffering with high amounts of acne, potentially suggest them reducing their dairy intake or if they are consuming a lot of whey protein, they might just switch to a plant protein source. When it comes to including fish in our diet, there doesn't seem to be any real benefits of including fish outside of the benefits of the omega-3 content of the fish. So if you can get a preformed DHA in a supplement such as algae and that is within your budget, that is definitely a good option as a bit of a insurance policy for yourself. If budget is a little bit tight and you can't afford to go out and get a preformed algae DHA supplement, I do suggest consuming as much ALA as you can in the form of chia seed, ground flax seed, walnuts, hemp seeds, things like that, just to get yourself in the ballpark and optimize that conversion from ALA 
to DHA and EPA. And lastly, when it comes to the effects of high protein intakes and specifically high leucine intakes and its effects on IGF-1 and potential cancer risk, I think the takeaway there is, as Alan alluded to, the data isn't super clear on this and it's potentially better to preserve muscle mass and skeletal integrity well into your elderly years than worry about a not conclusive IGF-1 mechanism of increasing cancer risk. And I definitely agree with that. I would much prefer to be a 60 plus year old that is strong, fit and healthy and able to do the things that I want to do than be struggling with sarcopenia, um, you know, reduced bone mineral density, fractures, falls, things like this, um, and not be able to live the life that I'm living. But at the same time, that's just me, and I guess we'll wait for more data to come out around leucine and its effects on IGF-1, and if that mechanism really is something we need to be uh, worried about. So I'm assuming most of you are already following a plant-predominant or plant-exclusive diet anyway, so this episode isn't likely going to convince you to start consuming any animal products, and that wasn't the goal from the outset. But I hope you can take away the the level of nuance that goes into nutritional research and and understanding that not all big shots in the plant-based community have it all together. We're all trying to assess the data from our own perspectives and some of us may have bias, some of us may have invested uh, interests in these different subjects and we have to be aware of that when we are looking at uh, nutritional science. So I'm going to leave it there. We're not going to go any further. If you want to dive into some more data, feel free to check out Alan's stuff. Um, I'll link all his links in the description as well so you can keep keep up to date with him and the incredible uh, content he does put out. If you want to get in contact with me, hit me up on Instagram. I'd love to see you share this one on your stories. And of course, check out the brand new Vegan Body Coach website where you can check out all the coaching that I do, what I do and what I don't do, and if it's going to be the right fit for you. So guys, we'll leave it there and we'll catch it in the next one. Go eat up, go lift up, and get some more plants.